Welcome to the Vail Christian Church Podcast. Today we're kicking off a new series called Summer of Psalms. Pastor Kevin Canterbury starts with Psalm 122 with a message titled, The Pilgrimage to Worship God. At Vail Christian Church, we believe in training followers of Christ to worship, gather, give, and serve. Morning. Does that put you in the mood for summer? Yeah? Well, there you go. You guys are alive and awake in this service, right? Sitting out by the pool, listening to the Beach Boys. Hey, I'm glad you guys aren't all out surfing this morning, though. I'm glad you're here. So we're going to just have some fun with that bumper and do some summer songs each week to remind us of that and maybe help us uh, forget how hot it is. So anyways, it's good to have you guys here. So we're launching a series this morning called Summer Psalms, as you can see up there. And it's going to be a six-week series looking at some different psalms and uh, just a wonderful time. The psalms are, are such a, a great set of books. It's actually composed of five different sets of books. And I love the psalms because they just cover all kinds of different emotions. You know, it's not just happy, joyful stuff, which is what we tend to focus on. But there's songs of lament in there. Uh, there's some psalms where you're like, I don't know what's going on. That's kind of crazy. Um, but it, it's this outpouring of emotion because it's real, right? It's real life. And we have times where we question God and we have times where uh, we're not sitting on the mountaintop. And then we have times where we are. And that's what the Psalms express to us. And so this morning we're looking at Psalm 122. And Psalm 122 is a Psalm of Ascent. It's part of a series of 15 Psalms, Psalm 120 through 122. 134, and they're all these psalms of ascents. And they were sung by the Israelites when they would come to Jerusalem or they would uh, uh, travel and make this pilgrimage to Jerusalem for different feasts and festivals. And it was designed to, to unify the people of Israel and to uh, just spread this joy and this anticipation for what was going to happen. The primary goal of the pilgrimage was to give thanks to the Lord. And as I said, uh, when we were doing the Lord's Supper, this is in stark contrast to the nations that surround Israel. When they go to worship and offer sacrifices, they're doing it because they want to get something from the deity that they're worshiping. They expect something. They bring a sacrifice so that the gods will bring down rain or so they'll have good crops. And the God of Israel, Yahweh, he's not like that. Because the God of Israel is the initiator of everything. He calls the people unto himself. And then they come to worship God out of thanksgiving and a joy for what God has already done for them. And so this psalm has a lot to teach us about true and proper worship. We're going to be talking about worship this morning. I know I'm the, the worship pastor here, so... I've managed 16 years not to have to preach on worship. And Ben's like, I'm going to have you do it. Um, but it's not going to be what you think it is, I promise you. Worship is a, a really broad term. It's broad because it describes not only something that we do, an action that we carry out, we're worshiping, but it describes who we are. Our identity is worshipers. And it's not just limited to the church or to the people of God. It's Every single person made in the image of God is a worshiper. They will all worship something. They'll give worth and value. They'll sacrifice 
for something. It's just a question of what that thing is. We often speak of worship in the context of singing. It's appropriate because of the more than 200 times that it's mentioned in the Bible. And there's a number of words. I think off the top of my head, there's seven words in the New Testament that get rendered as worship. And in the Old Testament, depending on the translation, there can be anywhere from four to nine different words that get rendered as worship. So it's broad. Um, But of the 200 times that it's mentioned in the Bible, many of those are mentioned in relationship to or in conjunction with singing. I would guess that as they were going on this pilgrimage to Jerusalem that we're reading about here, these songs of ascent, uh, they're probably singing a lot of things because singing unifies and brings us together and focuses us in on the object of our worship unlike anything else uh, does. It certainly is not the entirety of worship. It's a, a tiny part of it. So I would guess that they're doing that. They're, they're singing as they're traveling. Somebody probably brought a tambourine and wrecked the whole thing, right? If I'd have been there, I'd thrown them out of the camp. But Psalm 122, let's read the whole thing here. Psalm 122 says this, I was glad because they said to me, we will go to the Lord's temple. Our feet are standing inside your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a city designed to accommodate an assembly. The tribes go up there, the tribes of the Lord, where it is required that Israel give thanks to the name of the Lord. Indeed, the leaders sit there on thrones and make legal decisions on the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May those who love her prosper. May there be peace inside your defenses and prosperity inside your fortresses. For the sake of my brothers and my neighbors, I will say, may there be peace in you. And for the sake of the temple of the Lord our God, I will pray for you to prosper. I want to look at the big picture and try to see what this psalm tells us about worship. And I believe this psalm is specifically talking about communal worship. That's the worship that we do when we come together. It's a broad topic. You can, uh, you can, do, uh, you can experience worship in your heart personally, but that is not the entirety of worship. Worship is meant to be experienced also in community as we gather together, and we'll see that. So the first thing I want to point out here and I want to talk about is this relationship between Jerusalem and the church because the Psalms and the Old Testament, especially the prophets, are full of language regarding Israel and Jerusalem, as is the New Testament. In Revelation... It talks about the city of God at the very end. The new Jerusalem, this is a city that you and I, those of us who have our faith in Christ Jesus, will be citizens of this city. We will live in Jerusalem someday. So it ties in with what we're talking about. Now, uh, of course, uh, Israel is, they're not always synonymous with each other, Israel and the church or Jerusalem and the church. Israel was a city-state in the ancient Near East or more specifically in Palestine during the late Iron, early Bronze Age. It had civil and military relationships with the nations that surrounded it. It was a city that King David captured from the Jebusites through a military campaign, and he established 
the place where the temple was going to be built. And Solomon, his son, is the one who built that temple in all of its splendor and grandeur. To add further to the distinction, we also must consider that Israel and Jerusalem are also a city and a state that exists today. A city and a state that are very hotly contested over, that are in the news a lot. And I don't think that's a coincidence because where God's presence is or where the people of God gather, you can bet there are going to be forces, spiritual forces that are not going to want that to happen. And I don't think it's much unlike the church today. I mean, if you think about the temple mound, that place where the temple used to sit and all of these things that center around uh, what's happening there, when the capital got, or when, when the United States recognized Jerusalem as the capital and all the upheaval that happened after that. And if you don't think there's something spiritual that's connected back to all this behind that, you're missing it. It's not much unlike the church today. People don't like it when we gather together as a, a people They don't like what the church stands for. I think that's why it's so important that we have these buildings and these churches because they stand as these monuments and these places. So these two ideas are really connected. As it pertains to this psalm, Psalm 122, and to the other psalms of of ascent, Jerusalem is understood as the place where God dwells and where his chosen people gather. And to those of us who have placed our faith and the saving work of Jesus through his death on the cross and his resurrection. We are part of that covenant. We've been grafted in, as Paul says. The connection that we draw between Jerusalem and the church is that they are both the tangible expression of God's kingdom on earth. As it pertains to these Psalms, the connection is that they are the tangible expression of God's kingdom on earth. God promised to make Abraham into a great nation. The Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12 too. I will make you into a great nation. You will exemplify divine blessing. Then again in Exodus 19, 6, as the Hebrews are gathered, God says, you will be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, a nation set apart for God. And then in 1 Peter, the same language is used to describe the church. Verse, uh, uh, chapter two, verse nine and 10 says this, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own, so that you may proclaim the virtues of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You once were not a people, but now you are God's people. You were shown no mercy, but now you have received mercy. I love that. You were once not a people, and now you are a people. So there's a strong biblical connection between Israel and the church, and Jerusalem is the place where you go to meet God and to meet his people. It's not at all unlike what we're doing this morning and what Christians have done throughout the centuries as we gather together in communal worship, and we are a tangible expression of the church in our community, with all of our flaws and mistakes, we've been called out from the rest of the world to be God's people, to be set apart, to be this nation of priests. 
that commune with God. And so while one aspect of worship is personal, it's in our hearts, how we live our lives in obedience to God's command. I believe that's the highest form of worship is living your life in obedience. We're also on a pilgrimage to worship God with the people of God. It's communal, it's relational. And so we see in Psalm 122 that there is this joy that spreads, it's contagious, and it spreads throughout this assembly led by David. And it's focused on the place where God's presence and his kingdom tangibly reside. They're going to Jerusalem. So let's break this psalm down verse by verse. David says this in verse one and two. I was glad because they said to me, we will go to the Lord's temple. Our feet are standing inside your gates, O Jerusalem. I want you to walk through this with me. We know that God is all-knowing. He's all-powerful. God is not limited by time and space. He can be anywhere. But the Bible uses language that indicates that God's presence is manifested or realized differently in different places at different times. On some occasion, God is, is seen and heard uh, within nature itself, within reality itself. One example, uh, of course, would be the burning bush when the Lord speaks to Moses and he's seen as this burning bush, we call those theophanies. And of course, we know the greatest expression, the moment when God stepped out of heaven and became a man and became somebody who lived in time and space, a historical person. So there are these times when, uh, when God steps into reality and there are places where God's presence is felt and experienced. When the Israelites first became a people and they are wandering in the wilderness, they carry with them the tabernacle, the tangible representation of God's presence. And where they take the tabernacle and where they set it up, this is where the presence of God is. This is where you commune with God. To dwell with is what it means. And then during the reign of Solomon, the temple's built. This is the house of the Lord that his father David had wanted to build for God, this permanent place of worship. And in it is the Holy of Holies, where you must be pure and holy. Only the priest can enter the Holy of Holies. The location and singularity of the temple are so important that in the book of Kings and Chronicles, Many of the kings are uh, derided for setting up places, uh, high places of worship. Now, there are certainly kings that did lots of wicked things in those two books. But there are kings whose only thing that they are, are um, labeled wicked for is because they set up high places to Yahweh, somewhere else. They set up another place of worship. To you and I, it doesn't seem like a big deal. But to God, no, you worship me in the temple that's what I've commanded you to do. When Christ comes and fulfills his work, God's presence is expressed in Christ's kingdom, the kingdom of God. This is the church when the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost and sends the church out into the world. And where the church is, that's you and I who have placed our faith in Jesus, that is where the presence of God is. We are the temple of God. We carry him into the world and we tabernacle out in the world. And so if you look at the structure here, 
Sorry, Sherry, I'm all over the place. You can just put the rest of that up there. I like patterns. This makes a wonderful pattern because you can see how worship of God moves from the tabernacle. It's out here. You take the presence of God to the temple. It's at this singular place. Christ is at the center of it. And after Christ comes, it begins to move back out and it's in God's people. And we take that out into the temple of God's creation. There's a pattern there. And so we've spent a really good time establishing the relationship between Jerusalem and the church and where God's presence is manifested because this language is all over the Psalms. You're gonna hear it again and again. And we have to understand that because otherwise we're just reading about this uh, Psalm that, and what does it have to do with us today? Well, it has everything to do to us because we are the place where we dwell as God's people and his presence is here. And this is gonna tell us something about how we worship God as a people. So how do we connect the two? What does this psalm tell us about the nature of communal worship? Well, first, it tells us something about the motive for proper worship. Joy that leads to gladness. Gladness, that word, comes from the realization and the recognition that you don't deserve anything that you've received from God. As I said, the distinction between Israel and the other nations. Israel worships God because he called them out. They don't worship. They're not trying to wake him up. They're not trying to conjure him up or get him to do something. They're responding to the work that God has already done. The realization and the recognition that you don't deserve anything you receive from God. Joy. Joy is such a... uh, unique word. I don't think that people outside of the church, people who are not followers of Christ, can experience joy. I don't. They have some idea of what it is, but joy is directly related to the understanding that we are far from God and he has brought us close. And so joy isn't dependent on circumstances. It's the knowledge of God's grace deeply known and lived out. Yes, you and I will experience disappointment, pain, anguish, dissatisfaction. Perhaps you've experienced that just today. But you have been redeemed. You have been called God's sons and daughters. You were once far from God. You and I were once far from God. Once by nature, it says, children of wrath. And now God has not only redeemed us, but he's called us and welcomed us in. And we are his sons and daughters. We were once not a people, and now we are a people. And so imagine that Israelite farmer who lives outside of the city where many of them lived, and you're getting ready to make this journey, this pilgrimage into Jerusalem to worship your God who has given you so much. Perhaps they have a child or children, and maybe those children are making that journey for the first time time. Can you imagine the expectation that those children have? They've heard the stories about this city of God. This is where King David resides. King Solomon, the great kings. This is God's temple. And we're making this journey now to go to that place. The expectation that is in their hearts. My wife and I are getting ready to go to Hawaii for the first time in about a week and a half. Um, and we're really excited about it. But every time I, I talk to somebody about it, 
you guys have experienced is what do people do? They're like, oh, 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 you're going to Hawaii. You have to go here. Oh, you gotta do this thing. Make sure you're gonna do this thing, right? And I got a list of about 100 things that I have to do when I go to Hawaii. It actually gets to the point where I feel anxious about going because I don't know how I'm gonna capture everything in the time we're going. And I wanna experience it as much as I can because I've got this expectation that this is gonna be the greatest thing in the world, right? It's an expectation. People have been telling me about it. This is the kind of expectation that should accompany us when we come to the house of God. Now, I know that's probably not what you guys do when you come here every week. Perhaps you did it when you first came to Christ. There's that excitement and that joy of being with God's people, of hearing his word. Or perhaps uh, when you went through something really difficult in your life. But it's just something that we do every week and we can get out of that habit. I don't think I can snap my fingers and, and change that for you. I can't change it for myself. It's a gradual progress. But I at least want you to acknowledge, as I have, that there's something missing there. That is the expectation that we should have when we gather with God's people to worship together. That same expectation because we are meeting our God face to face and he has done so much for us, not just once, not just forgiving our sins and saving us, but he continues to give us life and breath and everything that we have is a gift from him at every moment. That's the goal. Our sinfulness Our brokenness, our minds keep us from experiencing that. We've got to remember that and push through. Gladness comes from the mind-blowing reality of standing before God. That's the best way I can describe it. And I think about Isaiah the prophet when he says in chapter 6, verse 5, Too bad for me. I am destroyed for my lips are contaminated by sin. And I live among people whose lips are contaminated by sin. My eyes have seen the king, the Lord, who commands armies. He has that vision. He sees the Lord sitting on his throne and the train of his robe fills the temple with his glory. And his response is, who am I? Who am I? The response of a true and proper Worshippers, heartfelt joy, it's gladness, it's the realization of how far we are from God and how close we've become because of Christ and it spreads to others. Joy is contagious. You guys know that. You've been around people that exhibit joy and you've been around people that don't exhibit joy. Who do you want to be around? You want to be around the person that exhibits joy. You know that's what you want. I want to be like that. Oh, I don't want to be tossed and turned by the waves and the wind of life. I want to have my faith anchored in Jesus Christ like Paul did. In all circumstances, he was able to find joy because of what Christ had done through him. And so according to Psalm 122, true and proper communal worship has three outcomes, three things uh, that are evident and present where there is true and proper communal worship, according to this psalm. The first is unity. Where there is true and proper worship, there is unity. Verse three and four of Psalm 122 say, Jerusalem is a city designed to accommodate an assembly. The tribes go up there. The tribes of the Lord, where it is required 
that Israel gives thanks to the name of the Lord. You see, communal worship is inclusive. It accommodates the entire assembly of God. All the tribes gather together. Unity does not mean conformity. All these different people. So for us today, God's church transcends the nations. God's calling people from every nation to worship himself. And so unity is hard. It takes effort because you have to lay down your own needs and wants and desires and set them aside for those of others. You have to get above whatever the the cultural things are and you have to realize that we're all part of this uh, citizens of heaven. We all have this citizenship and so there's unity in it. Kings that sought after unity such as David or such as Hezekiah that, that wanted to bring the tribes together. There were those who abandoned unity for the sake of their own power and legacy. Kings such as Solomon at the end who turned away from that or Rehoboam and Jeroboam following him and ultimately split that nation up into the two kingdoms. And there was always an echoing cry that the tribes would be united again and that those two kingdoms would experience unity and wholeness. And you know what? I think the same thing's true in the church today. There's a lot of different churches, right? There's a lot of different opinions. Everybody's got a different opinion. But unity is an outpouring, an expression when we have true and proper worship because we're focused on the same goal, and that's God. The next result of true and proper communal worship is justice. Justice means that God will settle the score. No evil deed will go unpunished, and no righteous person will be punished. There has to be justice. The Bible says that Justice and mercy are the foundation of God's throne. I realize that word has been used for all kinds of stuff, and I don't like that because it triggers people, and I get it, but let's bring it back because that's all over the Old Testament. That's who God is. He's a just God. There will be a reckoning in the end. That's what it means. And it will be equitable justice for all people. Justice flows out of the throne. And where the assembly gathers, there should be justice. There should be this desire and this effort to make things right. It points to righteousness and the alignment with God's word. It holds no place for wickedness and deceit. The city of Jerusalem is seen here in verse 5 as a place where divine justice is carried out. At its best, Jerusalem was a place where citizens and foreigners alike could find justice. It was a place where the poor and the marginalized could find refuge and provision and safety. They could all gather together as one. Finally, the last four verses of the psalm point to peace. Because where there's true and proper communal worship, there's peace. It says in verse six, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May those who love her prosper and may there be peace inside your defenses and prosperity inside your fortresses. And for the sake of my brothers and my neighbors, I will say, may there be peace in you. For the sake of the temple of the Lord, our God, I will pray for you to prosper. Do you pray for the peace and prosperity of God's church? Do you pray for it? Do you truly love and desire 
that God's church would prosper. True and proper communal worship, the worship that flows out of the joy of being one of God's redeemed sons and daughters, leads us to peace. I hope that you will pray for peace. You know, it's been a rough season for all churches. You cannot make the right decision. I don't care what you decided over the last year and a half. Somebody doesn't think it's the right decision. And you know, it kind of saddens me because I get it. We all have our opinions, all right? There's diversity in the church, but when we come together, we are God's people. We are followers of Christ. We submit to him and him alone. And it just tears me up that we've given up unity and peace in the church because we have our own agendas. And what, what a life in Christ calls us to is to lay those things down every day. Say, so I'm going to give that up because it's about Christ and it's about unity in the church. The church is the hope of the world. So we have to be willing to give up our own agendas for the sake of Christ and his church, the church that he gave himself for the bride of Christ. Pray for peace in God's church. Pray that God's church would prosper because it is the hope of the world. What does this have to do with me? Well, number one, the pilgrimage of worship starts with thanksgiving. It starts with thanksgiving. It's about us responding to what God has already done for us. It starts with the right posture. God owes me nothing. I owe him everything, and he has given me everything. I've done nothing to earn it. Why would he do that? Why? Out of his great love and mercy and thanksgiving flows out of us. Number two, communal worship is essential to true and proper worship. You cannot experience the fullness of worship on your own. It's not designed that way. There are people who I've run into many times who say, well, I don't, I don't attend a church or I'm not connected with people because I can worship God any way I want and I just do that at home and I go, you're not, you're not doing it. You're not. Yeah, you can have times of worship on your own. I get it. But God's designed it to be done in community. That is a huge expression of worship for God's people to come together. You can't bear those fruit, unity, justice, and peace without communing together, right? That's one of the fruits of true and proper worship. Don't lie to yourself and think that worship can be expressed just in your heart. It cannot. It's expressed in the community of God's people. And then finally, number three, true and proper communal worship are underscored by the presence of unity, justice, and peace, as we've just seen in that psalm. I think it's very clear in those verses. Jerusalem was a place where you could find all those things. That's what God's kingdom is about. And so if there isn't unity in the church, worship's not happening. If there isn't justice in the church, worship's not happening. The pursuit of righteousness, the disdain for wickedness, again, hear what I'm saying about justice and what it is. It goes back to God. Worship isn't happening. Let us be a church that gathers each week with expectation and joy in our hearts, with gladness for what God has done for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died 
for us. Let us be a church on a pilgrimage to worship God together. Before I close in prayer, I want to let you guys know about something that's happened next week. Uh, A way we can practice this, but it just so happens it's happening next week. I want to let you know about it. It's the night of worship. Night of worship is just a, a wonderful time to gather together as God's people. It's informal. You can bring your own chairs, bring a camp chair and set it up out there. You can visit with people and just have a good time. And uh, I, I love it because our whole worship team is a part of it. And, we, and one of my favorite things is, even though it's kind of a logistical mess, I try to get everybody up on stage at different times and we're always moving around, but it's always such a wonderful event. So I invite you guys to come to that. Uh, it's an event you can invite somebody to. It's just out here in the courtyard, outside. Beautiful summer night. Next Sunday at 7.30 in the courtyard. Let's pray. Father, we want to be a church that expresses true and proper worship to you in our community. The place where God's presence is felt tangibly expressed, where people can come and know they're at the kingdom of God. They can experience you. And so, Father, help us to strive for all these things above our own agendas for unity and for peace in your church. Help us to be worshipers that are worshiping in spirit and in truth. So, Father, we pray for the prosperity and the peace of your church, the church that you gave yourself for, the church that is the hope of the world. Help us to be people that go out into our community and take the presence of God with us wherever we go and the peace of God wherever we go. And we gather together each week in your name to give you thanks for what you've done for us. We praise you. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you so much, guys. Have a wonderful week. Thank you for listening to the Vail Christian Church Podcast. If you have any questions, would like more information about our church, or would like to see the video cast of this message, please visit our website at www.vailchristian.com.